Welcome to the Schmooze. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Alex Wall and Mark Smolowitz. Alex is an award-winning journalist who lives in the Bay Area. After becoming a personal chef in 2006, she started cooking for families part-time and turned her interest to writing primarily about food. As a contributing editor to J Weekly, the Bay Area's Jewish newspaper, where she was a staff writer for six years, she writes a monthly column about interesting Jews in the food world, as well as other features. She is a regular contributor to the San Francisco Chronicle, Berkeley Side, The Forward, and a number of other publications. Mark Smolowitz is a multi-award winning director, producer, and executive producer whose career has spanned 20 years across all aspects of the entertainment and media business. His career focus has been powerful social issue filmmaking across all genres. His films have been screened at top-tier festivals, including Sundance, Berlinale, AFI, Tokyo, and Melbourne. And today he works full-time as an independent filmmaker while maintaining a thriving consulting practice at 13th Gen. Alex and Mark are currently collaborating on production of the film Lonely Child. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, since meeting you here at the Yiddish Book Center, Alex, and seeing the trailer for Lonely Child, I've really been eager to visit with you both to learn more about this amazing project. So, Alex, when we met here at the Center a few months ago, you shared a preview trailer of the film, which is an amazing story, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of the backstory for our listeners. Of course. So, the story begins with a song that was written in the Vilna Ghetto in 1943. The song is called The Lonely Child, Dos Altna Kind, and pardon my Yiddish pronunciation, um, it was written about my mother and my grandmother uh, by Shmerka Katriginsky, who is well-known in Yiddish-speaking circles as quite the hero or a hero of the Vilna Ghetto. He was a writer and a poet and a partisan. And um, apparently my grandmother was having a relationship with him, a romantic relationship. This was after her um, husband had been killed by the Nazis. And he wrote this song, among many songs that he wrote during the Holocaust, um, about a mother separated from her child, as my grandmother had given my mother away to her nanny to raise her as a Polish girl. And my mom was um, age two at the time, or one and a half, and so had no memory of my grandmother when the war was over. Um, so the song wasn't really a huge factor in my life growing up, but when my mother passed away in 2002 of breast cancer, we played a version of it at her funeral, and one of my friends learned it. And a couple years ago, that friend who teaches at the Lander Grinspoon Academy, right near the Yiddish Book Center, um, she taught the song to her, to her kids. And she sent me a video of it without any warning. And, you know, to see these children singing my mother's song, just um, I just burst into tears. Every time I talk about it, I, I just get chills thinking about it. And that kind of set me thinking about how the song was living on in the lives of other people. It had taken on a life of its own, and I started wondering who else out there had found it. And, you know, I kind of thought of it as something that I was among the only people in the world who knew the song anymore because it's so long after the fact. You know, we're talking almost 75 years 
Um, and, of course, the people who wrote it and the people that it was about and inspired it all have been gone for many years now. So it just kind of set me on this path of exploring uh, other stories of people who had found the song and were using it in various ways. And at what point did you decide that you would like to consider telling sort of the story of the song, as it were? Well, I had struggled, you know, I, as a writer, I had struggled with this kind of legacy for years, feeling like I should do something with it and not really wanting to and feeling guilty about that. And I'd actually done this whole drama therapy process um, here in the Bay Area, you know, to help me kind of figure out um, that I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything with it. I didn't want the responsibility. It was such a weight on my shoulders. Um, and And then when I got that video, that kind of made me changed my mind because I started thinking of the song as the hook and it made me think about how the song is being used in the present and that somehow made it um, much more interesting to me. I, I just didn't want to do a project where I was retelling the story of what my grandparents suffered in the Holocaust. I felt like, you know, I don't want to criticize anyone who do those projects. Obviously, I think they're valuable and relevant, but it wasn't my project that I wanted to do. And something about the song just seemed so much more hopeful and positive and life-affirming, and, and I just really was intrigued by also that people would be writing poetry and songs in the ghettos when they thought they were going to be killed. I mean, that's a, you know, that form of resistance is so powerful. So there were many angles of it that appealed to me, and um, because it was a song, I, I thought, well, I can't write an article about it. This has to be a film because we have to see musicians performing the song and different interpretations of it, um, but I am not a filmmaker, and so once I had this um, idea I thought of Mark because we had gone to college together, and I'll let him pick up the story from here. Great. <laughs> um, so this is Mark, and thank you for having us on your podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Um, yeah, so Alex, as she just said, you know, we knew each other in college in the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, and we had both been quite Jewishly involved at school. We were part of a group of students who formed the Progressive Jewish Student Union, and I remember it fondly, having stayed together and doing Jewish things together. Um, and, you know, by way of sort of, you know, further background, um, I actually um, have a shared experience with Alex in the sense that we both have mothers who were hidden children during the Holocaust in Poland, so that's my a similar family story, and we both had grandparents who had survived the Holocaust. So what's interesting is that when I was in my senior year at Santa Cruz, and I was in the film program, the undergraduate film program, I made a 30-minute senior thesis film that was inspired by my mother's story. And I showed that film at a, you know, at a senior thesis event, and Alex ran up to me after the screening, and we sort of, you know, had this moment of kind of understanding that we both had this shared experience and that it was very unique uh, that people our age in our cohort from California who really grew up on the West Coast had you know, mother and grandparents who had, you know, a direct experience out of Poland and the Holocaust, and we didn't know other people like ourselves. I really did not know other, other kids my, in my, you know, in my immediate milieu of growing up in Los Angeles who had a similar experience. So um, I always remembered that about Alex, and I know she always remembered that about me, and it was something that kind of, it was sort of like we saw each other in 1990 <laughs> in that very special way where you really see a friend and you're like, wow, that's, we have a shared experience, and and we really didn't stay in touch for much of the you know kind of you know of our twenties and thirties. Um, and we found each other again on Facebook. Um, and at that point in um, our stories, I had been living in San Francisco many years. Alex had moved to the Bay Area and was living in Oakland. And we sort of struck up a friendship again. And it was this sort of you know getting to know each other at our you know in our forties 
in a, at a later stage of life. And um, and long story short, there are a lot of sort of steps along the way, but Alex decided that I was the right person to bring the project to and to make, you know, kind of pitch it to. And I heard the pitch over an interesting dinner where we met and talked about it, and I kind of went, okay, I think this is an interesting idea for a movie. Um, and I will say that, you know, um, you know, I've been, as you said, heard, you know, in my bio at the beginning, I've been doing this a long time. I've been significantly involved in, you know, more than 35 movies. And, and you know, this is my life's work. And so I take it very, very seriously. I want to be successful at it. I want movies to have an impact. I want them to, you know, change hearts and minds and affect people in beautiful, powerful ways. And this is my, you know, my chosen career. And, I, you know, I, if I'm going to make a movie, I have to really believe, A, that I'm the right, that this is the right film to make and that I'm the right filmmaker to make it. And... Alex and I kind of set off on a direction of really exploring if, you know, if we were the right fit, we could, could we do this together? And that journey started about a year and a half ago in a pretty substantial way, like early 2016. And so over the arc of the last 18 to 20 months, we've developed this movie together. And it's, um, it's interesting. What happened was that, you know, because I've made other music documentaries. So I love music and I love how music can sort of, you know, work in films and affect, affect audiences in these kind of beautiful, transcendent ways. And I, too, have made two other Jewish films, one that had a Holocaust arc. And so I, I was always thoughtful about when you want to undertake a Holocaust story, you have to really think about all the other films that pre-exist. You know, I always think that way. Like, if I'm going to make a movie, like, what else has come before me? How can we be additive here? How can we do something that is unique and special and contributes to the stories and really, you know, takes people in new, unexpected directions? And so as a storyteller... I started thinking about two interesting things for me, um, one of which was something I think a lot of Jews are thinking about right now, especially those who pay attention to Holocaust discourse, is that is this idea that we are, on, we are on the precipice of losing the last living Holocaust survivors, right? So if we are in this moment when there are no more, no more living Holocaust survivors to testify to their lived experience, how does the Holocaust story change? And so I felt like as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, that Alex and I could really contemplate that moment and making this film at that moment. And how our song, how this beautiful little lullaby that was written in the Vilna Ghetto in 1943 that has obviously a strong place in her family legacy, how could this song be an opportunity to kind of consider memory, transmission of trauma, thinking about continuity, thinking about getting younger people to contemplate the Holocaust by way of a song? especially if young, hip, interesting contemporary musicians were invited into the process of reinterpreting it. And so Alex, who has had a number of really pretty amazing um, transcendent experiences around the song, which will be at the heart of the film, has welcomed in my ideas creatively. And we, so we're sort of doing two things. We're kind of telling Alex's story, and Alex will be an on-screen guide, takes us around the world. We meet musicians that she's uncovered, that she's had developed a connection with. But then we're also together seeding relationships with musicians um, around the world to open up the creative um, experiment in interesting ways. Um, and we are loving the response that we're getting. There's people um, in Poland, in Israel, in South Africa, here in the Bay Area, on the East Coast, um, who are creatively inspired by uh, the idea of contemplating this song at this moment, um, both Jewish and non-Jewish. And so that's really um, also very interesting for me. Yeah, I, I want to go. I want to go back to Alex about this. I mean, I think that the song was the thing that um, precipitated doing the film. But it feels to me in the in watching the trailer, which is incredibly moving, as Alex will attest to my reaction when I saw it. Uh, 
It's also a, it's a larger story. Um, and I think all that you've discovered along the way, Alex, it just is really extraordinary. And I wondered, again, if you would share a little bit about that. I mean, I saw it play out when you were here at the Yiddish Book Center and kept having interactions, unexpected interactions. Um, and it seems like that's been something that's happened throughout the journey so far. Could you speak a little bit about that? Of course. Well, um, in fact, one a new moment like this actually happened just yesterday, which I can tell you about. Okay. But um, if you want me to speak about the, what happened at the Yiddish Book Center, that was quite extraordinary as well. I mean, I was coming to town because my niece was graduating from Mount Holyoke, and I thought I should meet people at the Yiddish Book Center because I wanted you there to know that I was taking on this project. And as I said earlier, Katriginsky is quite well known in Yiddish-speaking circles. And so... Um, you know, they first had me meet with Michael, one of the fellows there, who pulled the book off the shelf and read to me the inscription that Katriginsky had written about the song, and, um, you know, he, gave, he took me on a tour, and then when I met with you, um, someone from the development department who came out to meet me, he heard that I was visiting, and he, he had seen the trailer, and amazingly, he seemed really familiar to me, because many years ago I knew his brother, but that's like a whole side right. <laughs> story. Um, he had gone into the files of the Yiddish Book Center and found correspondence that was written between my mother and my grandmother and apparently this man who was an active Yiddish Book Center um, member who w I guess was my grandparents' attorney. Um, I know their current attorney, so I think he was their attorney before he retired. And he wrote to them because he felt like the Yiddish translations in existence to the song didn't quite do it justice, or English, rather. He felt that he could do a better English translation, and so he had taken it upon himself to write one. And my mother wrote him back and thanked him for his thoughtful translation. And, and so um, Svi, in your development department, had this correspondence in my mother's handwriting. And, you know, I, I was visiting the book center. It was the day before my mother's. Uh, 15th yard site. She died in 2002 in May, and I was at the book center on May 24th. I still remember this, and she died on May 25th. Um, I'm going by the Gregorian calendar, not the Hebrew calendar for the yard site. But in any case, he pulled this out and, and put it in front of my face, and I just burst into tears seeing her handwriting because I hadn't seen it in so long. And the fact that it was in his files, in the files of the book center, was just unbelievable to me. Um, so that was just a really incredible moment and I'm sure we'll do something with it in the film. Um, yesterday, a woman, we received a donation for the film from a woman in New York that I had never heard of. I wrote to her to ask how she heard of us, and she said that she had been doing re research on songs of, uh, from the Holocaust to sing at her synagogue's Yizkor service, since we're coming up on Yom Kippur soon. And she had come across The Lonely Child, was doing further research about it after deciding she would sing that one, and found our project. Now, um, not only does she live on West End Avenue, which is like on four, like four blocks away from where my grandparents both lived when they first came to this, this country and then where they spent their final years, but my father recently joined the synagogue that she belongs to. So if she wouldn't have sent the donation, my father would have gone to this new synagogue this year on the Upper West Side and would have heard this strange woman that he doesn't know singing my mother's song at mm -hmm. the East Coast service, which is just really unbelievable. Um, and I'm going to New York in a few weeks. I'm going to meet her. And, um, you know, so these kind of things just keep happening. I mean, the, the main story that had convinced me that this really had legs was 
Um, there was a woman who found me through the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., who learned the song as a child in Israel, and now she lives in Johannesburg. And 11 years ago, she was turning 50 and was going to sing the song at her own birthday party to commemorate the memory of her parents, who were both Auschwitz survivors. And um, she has a whole story of how much this song meant to her as a child, and she has lost it, and she couldn't find the words, and then she found the words when her mother died on a piece of paper in a desk drawer, and she knew that she would sing the song again someday. And um, if you watch the trailer, she's the one at the end that I meet on the beach in Tel Aviv. Um, and she really wanted me to come to her 50th birthday party 11 years ago, and I halfway considered it um, because I've always wanted to go to South Africa. And um, it turned out that her party was on the exact day of my wedding. I was getting married that day, and so I couldn't make the trip to South Africa. But she sent me a video of her performance of the song, and she spoke so movingly about what the song had meant to her as a child and, and how it reminded her of her parents and um, and so we had been in touch all these years, and it turned out last summer, after I went to Poland, I decided to go to Israel to see my own family who lives there, and she and I overlapped by a day. Without talking to each other beforehand, um, you know, at the last minute I decided to write to her and say, by the way, I'm going to be in Israel. Is there any chance that we might overlap? Because she still does it regularly, and um, we overlapped by one day. And so we caught that on film, and you see that in the trailer. There seem to be so many of these moments for you, both um, personal interactions, you know, physical objects that connect to it. It's really remarkable. And, um, so where, where are you guys at with the project at this point? Um, that's a really great question. So, you know, we are actively fundraising, you know, sort of to, you know, raise our budget so we can really make the film. Um, we've spent, you know, a year and a half in kind of research and development, identifying stories, identifying musicians, Figuring out, you know, where we want to film, how we, you know, what we want this enterprise to look like. Um, earlier this spring, back in late May, early June, I was invited to the Krakow Film Festival in Poland. Um, I had uh, submitted the project to what they call their international co-production market. So in the independent film world, there's a lot of these kind of pitch sessions all around the world. There, you know, you can go pitch your projects. You usually are invited to competitive process, and we were selected. So it was a great opportunity to take the film project to Poland and. We were very successful there. So since Krakow, I have onboarded um, producers in Poland, um, Israel, South Africa. The South African company also has a connection to the UK. Uh, we have some, you know, different kinds of interest in Germany. So, so this really aims to be an international co-production with um, with the countries of interest where we hope to film. And so I'll work with those producers on the ground to fundraise in their countries, help them find the budget that they can then spend to help us shoot our movie in their countries, which is a very successful model that I've used on other projects. And then, of course, on the U.S. side, um, we have nonprofit fiscal sponsorship. So we operate as a 501c3, and we're, uh, we're, uh, we have fiscal sponsorship through the National Center for Jewish Film at Brandeis University, a very prestigious film organization that focuses on Jewish cinema. Great organization indeed. Great organization yeah. indeed. And so we're able to, you know, uh, write grants, uh, bring on individual donors, and, you know, that's going to be a big part of the puzzle on the U.S. side because there's, you know, that's a, a big way that documentaries get funded and financed here in the States, and I'm, I'm hopeful and confident that we will continue to garner interest philanthropically through, uh, because the film really works on a number of different important levels. Um, some interesting things happened in our country and in our world um, in the last you know, year that have changed the tone and tenor of, of, 
of the context in which this film is being made. And in fact, every film that I was making under the Obama years was one kind of film, and now every film that we're making under the Trump years is a different kind of film. And, and wherever you sit politically, you know, you have to be honest with the fact that there's been a change. And for Alex and I, you know, we, you know, we were both really affected by the change in leadership in our country. I mean, how can you not be? And what was interesting for me was that right when Trump came into office, there was all this mishegas, you know, immediately around refugees, around Holocaust remembrance. If you all remember, you know, what that was like, you know, in, in right away, right not long after inauguration, there was stuff going on that was super troubling. And um, I couldn't help not be affected by it and kind of start to see our film in through that lens. And so I kept thinking about um, the idea that Jews had been refugees during the 30s and 40s who were turned away right, left, and center, you know, all around the world um, and perished because of it. And I kind of brought us into the present. I'm like, well, we're also going through this horrible global refugee crisis now where people are being turned, turned away right, left, and center, and there's so much suffering as a result. And when I sort of took that concept and kind of, extrapolated further and really kind of connected it to the idea of, of the lonely child. Like, who does the lonely child in our song really represent? Well, it's children everywhere who are living through atrocities of all kinds. So I started thinking musically about that and how you could invite musicians from different cultures into this creative experiment. You could think about the child in Africa who's lost their parents to HIV or AIDS. You could think about the child in America who um, has their parents taken away because of immigration and deportation. You could think of the child in Aleppo who is living through war and is separated from their parents. So there are children everywhere who share stories with children who were affected by the Holocaust. And right now is an opportunity in this moment, this second half, second half of the second decade of, of the 21st century, to actually reignite that sense of memory and, and connect those dots across cultures, across communities. And so I started thinking, oh my goodness, what if, what if our little song, this beautiful children's lullaby, this beautiful Yiddish lullaby, could become a springboard for a much bigger contemplation around music and resistance and identity and, and this moment that we're living through. So, so the film has grown in scope and in terms of its zeitgeist. I'm always coming back to Alex, always coming back to Alex's family narrative and this beautiful song. And so, and what's interesting, I'll say, is that artists are responding to it. You know, they like it. They like the idea of reinterpreting this Yiddish lullaby and, and bring it into their own style. Um, I'll let Alex, you want to tell them about Ariel and, and Dan? Sure, well we um, have asked, we have two Jewish hip hop artists in the Bay Area who, who have each done their own projects relating to their family stories, one in Germany, one in Eastern Europe, and we met with them a couple months ago to ask them to be involved. We still don't know what that's going to look like yet, but we have some ideas of having artists perform the song in front of various memorial sites, um, both here and um, also in Poland. Um, we are actually, Mark and I are taking our first international trip together, our first trip of any kind together, actually, exactly. next month. Um, we're going to Poland together, and... As Mark said, we have onboarded a co-producer, a, a film um, producer in Poland who's very interested in working with us, and we're setting up all kinds of meetings there with various musicians, and, and we're going to be scouting some locations of where we, we might like to film there. I think that if all goes well, you know, on a fundraising, you know, on a fundraising plan, um, we'll be abroad filming next summer. That's really our, our big, our big, 
you know, sort of strategy is to take advantage of good weather <laughs> during the summer um, and take our take ourselves and our crew on the road, um, you know, all around Europe and all and also to South Africa next year. So it's um, it's a very ambitious plan, um, and you know, but very exciting at the same time. Um, you know, I think the the big challenge and opportunity is corralling all these talented, amazing people into one movie, and how to make that work. Um, you know, um, you know, over you know on budget and over you know x number of years. You know, everyone. You know, I will tell you a funny thing is that. So, uh, thank you for you know saying such nice things, nice things about the six minute trailer. I mean, that piece is you know was a wonderful thing to make. It was really meant to kickstart fundraising. It went so viral. I mean, I think it had like 12,000 views on Facebook, thousands of views on Vimeo. We've had so much interaction as a result that film festivals around the world already think that the movie's finished. <laughs> so <laughs> we've been getting inquiries, you know, from people saying, when can we show this, when can we show this, which, of course, makes me very happy. But um, my, my message to them is that The Lonely Child will be a 2020 title. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful. The film, you know, we wish you the best of luck and look forward to screening it here at the center when it's done as well and um just quickly before i let you go if our listeners would like to learn more where will they find you online yeah well we have a website lonelychildmovie.com you can go there to see the trailer you can also like lonely child movie on facebook uh we are also on twitter we are not on instagram yet but we might be at some point uh, but our website's really the best place and as mark said um all donations are tax deductible, and our fiscal sponsor is the National Center for Jewish Film, and all of that information is on our website. So thank you so much, Lisa. I, I feel, you know, I, as I told you when we met, you were one of the first people I actually was sitting right there when you watched the trailer, and it was really moving for me to see someone that I just met have um, such an emotional reaction to it. So um, I really appreciate your support. Well, good luck, and thank you for making the film and for sharing it, and uh, hopefully we can share a little bit of the music as we go out, okay? Thanks so much, Lisa. Have a great great. Great, thanks. Take thanks. care. Bye-bye. Bye. In umruf um tog, in a wander von acht, in umruf um schlaf lieg das Zimt You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Jordan Brown, Yiddish Education Specialist here at the Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend checking out episode 116, Lisa's 2016 interview with Hankus Netsky about Jewish musical life in Philadelphia. Until next time, be well, be healthy. Zagazun. <laughs>